The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Exodus chapter number 17 in your scriptures. Exodus chapter number 17. So good to see everyone this morning. And um, all of the scriptures we've read thus far all have a relationship to Exodus 17. And so I want to read the account for us, uh, beginning with verse number one. I'll read down through verse number uh, seven. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of Sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why do you chide with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is that that thou hast brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people. And take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock at Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock. And there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel. And because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. When Isaiah, in chapter 48 of his prophecy, recounted uh, this occasion in Exodus 17, he uh, said that the Lord redeemed his servant Jacob, and they thirsted not. When he led them through the deserts, he caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He claved the rock also, and the waters gushed out. One of uh, the literary devices the biblical authors used to tell the story of God redeeming and reclaiming his word is that of symbols, not the clanging symbol, but the S-Y-M-B-O-L symbol, the symbol which represents something beyond its literal meaning. So for example, in his poem of Lost Love, Edgar Allan Poe used a raven as a symbol to get across the permanence of lost love with the famous line, quote the raven. There you go. Very good, y'all. 
We all have been reading poetry. Fantastic. The, the band, uh, the Eagles, used Hotel California as a symbol in their famous song to explain the darkness inside the L.A. music industry of the 1970s. If you've watched the uh, Christian Bale Batman movies, which are the only Batman movies you should watch, by the way, um, the Joker, of course, is a symbol of chaos and rebellion against authority, symbols, fun things to discover, fun things to argue about when you analyze movies and literature and music. And as a literary tool, they are a way to find continuity in a story. And the sermon this morning, we want to discover how an actual wilderness, a rock, a rod, all serve as symbols to help us understand the larger story that God is telling us of redeeming his world, a world, by the way, that includes you and me. We're part of the world that God continues to redeem. But first, we need to take a, a quick look at a map. We'll put it up on the screen for you. And it's a map of the Sinai Peninsula. And that big red thing down there in the bottom left corner is Rephidim. And you can see there, it's part of the wilderness, part of the wilderness. And you can see the Red Sea coming up on one side and the Red Sea on the other side. And this is where the children of Israel have been led by God. So when Moses charts the journey from Egypt to the land of promise, what we learn is that God intentionally sends the newly delivered Israelites out into the wilderness. And it's not surprising, of course, that they encounter trouble because the wilderness is often a place of trouble and difficulty. But as they head to Rephidim, they believe that their troubles to be over because Rephidim is supposed to be a place of water and refreshment in the wilderness. It is supposed to be an oasis of sorts. In fact, the very name Rephidim means rest. It probably was named that because it is an oasis, a place of rest. And the stories that had passed down through antiquity suggest that it was a well-known place of rest. Tall trees, a lot of shade that provided um, also fresh water in abundance. So you can imagine you're moving through a wilderness. Now, uh, historians suggest that the children of Israel at this point are a million plus people. So when we talk about just our, you know, this group of people journeying through the wilderness, it's not like all of us on a warm summer day decided to take a long walk down to the village of Fort Edward and we got halfway and suddenly, you know, someone says, no one brought water. We're thirsty. Who's got the water? There's no water. That's not what we're talking about because it's a manageable situation. You're out in the wilderness and you're thirsty. Your livestock, your children, all depend upon water for their survival and there's no water in sight. Oh, you hear, oh yes, Rephidim, it's an oasis. We've got to get there. When we get there, everything will be fine, honey. 
kids will get a lot of water. We'll take care of the sheep, the cattle. Everything will be good. And you get there, and there's no water. And the, the question is raised with Moses in verses 2, two and 3. Give us water. You brought us out here. Where's the water? Did you, uh, did you bring us out here to die? And then, and then Moses responds back, well, well, why are you chiding me? Why are you arguing with me? Don't you realize you're actually tempting the Lord? Because he's the one that delivered you and brought you this way. And, and so this back and forth unfolds between Moses and the people. And then Moses says to God, what am I going to do with this people? I, I think they're going to kill me. I think they're going to pick up big stones and start throwing them at me. What am, I, what am I supposed to do? I mean, these are the questions in the wilderness, right? There's no sin in being thirsty. You have been led by God into a place that you assume is going to be a broad, pleasant, lush, fertile area where all kinds of good, refreshing things are going to happen, you get there, it's not that at all. Where's the water? You said there was going to be water. You brought us out here. There's no water. Well, in verse number 5, the Lord then responds to Moses. He says, I want you to go on before the people and take with thee of the elders of Israel. So Moses and the elders are going to go ahead of the people. And uh, he says to them, bring your rod with you, the one that you use to smote the river. Take it in your hand and go Verse 6, behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb. The place God tells Moses to go is a rock. Now, the name Horeb is very fascinating to the text. Because it sits in direct contrast to the meaning of the word named Rephahim. The, the word uh, Rephahim is rest, bounty. Horeb means exactly the opposite. Dry, dust, barren. So, so you've gone to a place where you think there's going to be massive provision. There's not. Then God tells you to go to a place you know by the very name there's no water there. It means dryness or desert. It's a rock after all. I mean, literally, Moses and the elders are between a rock and a hard place, aren't they? I mean, literally. Much, much like a short time ago in the story when, after leaving Egypt, the armies of Egypt come after them and the Red Sea is before them. And what do the people say to Moses? What did you bring us out here to die? The miraculous crossing over the Red Sea, no water. Did you bring us out here to die? But notice here in this, this instruction by God that there is hope. 
And the hope is found in what God says that he is going to do. Beginning of verse 6, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb. Now, now that is a very important phrase because in the Hebrew it suggests that the meaning is that God is willing to offer himself up as a judgment against the people and for the people. So, so the idea is that God's reputation is at stake. After all, he's the one that brought him out there. He's the one that led him to Rephahim. There's no water there. Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? And God says, okay, I'm going to take you to a place that's going to prove I can be trusted, and I am going to stand on that rock, as it were, before you. So that you can you can see it's me and then we're going to see can you actually trust me in a dry barren place where there doesn't appear to be any water there's no no refreshment this of course has a foreshadowing doesn't it because when God comes to rescue and redeem his people and yea the entire world he does so in a way that allows people to judge him. Can God be trusted? And just as the rocket Horeb appears to be completely inadequate as a source for water, so Jesus of Nazareth appears to be unfit for the task of redeeming the world and redeeming even his own people Israel. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, you're going to follow someone from Nazareth? Nothing good comes from there. And for three years, Jesus in public ministry then, as it were, is placed before the people, being judged by the people through his words and his works. And in the end, what do they do? They reject him. And they send him to the top of another rock, the place of a skull. And there they put him to death. But what they could not see is that through their obedience, God was actually working a much greater miracle for salvation. Because God puts forth the crucified one, the one who, like the scapegoat, is sent out into the wilderness bearing the sins of his people, the one who, according to Isaiah, was a root out of dry ground chapter 11 becomes the well of salvation in chapter number 12 from which all people who come with faith to jesus then draw from the waters of life eternal and just as god goes before the children of israel at horeb so god sends christ to go for, before us on the top of a hillside so that we might look at him and be faced with the question, can God be trusted? When, when the places that are supposed to be filled with bounty and, and to be filled with all kind of flourishing and all kinds of good things are actually dry, can we trust him to go to a place that doesn't look like it would offer anything at all and actually in that place find our souls 
satisfaction. This unexpected turn from Rephahim to Horeb defies our assumptions and expectations and is exactly what was meant by the writer, uh, German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote this, the weakness and suffering of Christ was and remains a reversal of what the religious people expect from God. Defies expectations. A reversal of expectations. A reversal of what we think God would do. Why wouldn't God just give them water at Rephahim? I mean, that's the place where it's supposed to be. Because God is always drawing out of us faith that points us into the place where God does things that no one thinks he could do. And in places where we don't really want to go because it's dry and it's barren and it's difficult. It's a rock. No water's going to be there. scene of mercy that unfolds at horror becomes the scene of mercy at the God forsakenness of the cross. God says to Moses, I'll be there, I'll stand before you and then smite the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He doesn't tell us there that the people drank. The assumption is yes they did. Moses did exactly what he was supposed to do. Took the rod, he smote the rock, water poured forth, the people were able to drink, just as on Golgotha's hillside, our Lord Jesus Christ was smitten, pouring forth from his body blood that is the blood that saves us from our sins. Now this is this is important, right? Because while it is true that here in this situation, and I think true as well in the life of Jesus, that God had put him, as it were, at our disposal to judge him, to see if he would keep his word, we need to remember a day is coming when that will be reversed and people will be before the judgment of God. And in that day of judgment, if they are outside of the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ, they will be forever cast into the wilderness, as it were, of hell, where they will roam, never being satisfied. Eternally, their soul's desperate needs never being met in outer darkness and forever away from God. But what God provided in Christ, the psalmist foresaw that, and Charity read it so wonderfully well, that God is filled with mercy. And God wants to extend that mercy to people who so desperately need it. What is true of Exodus 17, and what is true of Psalm 106, and what was true on the day when Jesus was nailed to a cross on top of Golgotha is true today and even in this room. God is being set before you. Do you judge him worthy? 
trustworthy. And yet at the same time, God is looking into the very soul and heart of the matter of your life, of our lives, and asking us, why won't we trust him? That he can provide in the most unlikely places. Wells of living water pouring forth from an eternal spring, Jesus Christ. What I started with from Isaiah 48 and that wonderful reflection by Isaiah on this matter of Exodus 17, Isaiah ends that chapter by saying this, there is no peace for the wicked. If you judge God revealed in Christ as unworthy of your trust, eternal judgment awaits no peace. Only an eternal wilderness awaits. You say, well, on what, like on what authority do you say these things? Who do you think you are? Well, it's interesting that God told Moses to bring his staff. Now, we, we are first in, introduced to the staff of Moses when God meets him in the wilderness, right, uh, at the burning bush. And he says, uh, and I'll just kind of summarize this. Moses, you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to be the deliverer of my people. And then Moses says, well, that's not going to work out too well. Uh, who am I? And God says, well, what do you have in your hand? And of course, he's been tending his father-in-law's sheep. He's like, well, I got my, my shepherd's staff in my hand. And God says, throw it on the ground. He does. It turns into a serpent. Pick it up. He picks it up. It's a staff. He says, take that with you. And that's going to be a sign or a symbol of my authority and God as it were put into the staff the rod of Moses's authority so that whenever you know Moses put it over the river Nile right and turned to blood you know this is what the rod the staff is for and God says I want you to take the elders with you and I want you to go to Horeb and take your rod because it's with the rod that I want you to smite the rock and waters are going to flow from it the word of god is the basis of our authority invested into the church through the ministry and power of the holy spirit when we open god's word and when we preach it and as it were we strike you with the rod of god's word the blood of jesus christ the the ministry of grace and mercy of jesus christ pours forth from the gospel the good word of god into your life to satisfy your soul this is why we say, bring your Bible to church. Have it open. Look at the words. Take it home. Read it. Study it. Think on it. Why? It is the authority of God for our lives. Because why? The blessed ministry of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit continues to need to be open to us. Because if we're not drinking from the well of salvation, we keep running the Rephidim. And trying to find it there. The staff or the rod was nothing supernatural until God decided to use it as a sign of authority in the hand of Moses. Placed into the authority of the church 
is the authority of God's word and the authority of ministers of God to preach that word as authoritative and to say to you, stop running the Rephidim and get to Horeb. <laughs> That's where the life is to be found. In the unlikely places. In the places that the world is rejecting. Because when we go into the word and we depend on the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to create faith and empower us for obedience, and then through the love and mercy of God, we are taken through the wildernesses of our lives as the water of Christ is poured out on us. But you know, like Israel, you can walk away from this. Like the world at large, you can walk away. Or you can humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. You can come to salvation in Jesus and through his word, you can find the light that will lead you to an actual place of eternal refreshment, even though God may send you into the wilderness. And as you find that place of refreshment in the ministry of the church and the word of God being formed then into the image of Christ, learning how to draw water from the well of salvation, your soul is satisfied. And what joy that does bring. Isaiah envisioned this. He said, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. Who hasn't thought about all of the white stuff being gone, all of the trees no longer being barren? Who hasn't thought of crocuses and tulips and daffodils and maybe one day even roses? Who hasn't thought about that stuff somewhere as you're driving around and going, How much longer do we have to go? And so it goes, well, who hasn't thought about it in the, in the general wilderness that we are in? That in our lives today, right now, God can cause things in our lives to blossom in the most unlikely of places. Well, there is a tremendous lesson to be learned from intense experiences in the wilderness. And one of the things to learn is that often it will not be the places or the people or the possessions that are being promoted as, you know, bringing peace and provision and prosperity in our lives. That's all the offerings of this world. God has a very strange way of using what appears to be unusable or even a curse. Jesus on top of Golgotha's hillside. But he uses those things to bring what we need in the wilderness experience of our lives. And Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ will stand for all eternity as a testimony of that reality. That God can take what appears to be cast off, cut off, and make it to be that which is life-giving. The world is going to constantly offer you opportunities to be comfortable at Rephidim. And that's what the world does. But you will find them to be barren. But what God offers appears to be foolish to the world. And that's why we have to constantly keep going back to Horeb and trusting the one who always is going to defy our assumptions and our expectations. 
If you are presently having an intense experience in the wilderness, like me, you long for light, just remember that we have markers to look at because we need direction. God had given Israel two markers, a pillars, actually, fire and a cloud, his visible manifestation of his presence. God has given to us the church as a marker. He has given us his word. He has given us our baptism. He has given us the table of our Lord. He has given us the fellowship of prayer of his people so that when we're in the wilderness and it seems like we're groping and we don't really know where to go and what to do, we have the fellowship of Christ in his body to make sense of the wilderness so that when we find ourselves thirsty and hungry, by God's grace, we lead each other back to Horeb and there, once again, we find Jesus. You know, in one sense, I've said nothing new this morning. It's what I've been saying over and over and over again. And yet, it is in the faithfulness to ordinary things that we find the most help. No new information, packaged a little different perhaps but laid before us once again to say, what are we going to do with it? Time once again becomes an ally. We want to rush through the wilderness. God says, no, I'm going to take you through at a steady pace. I want you to learn to trust me. Many places like Rephidim exist in our world. That's what humans do. I mean, just look at pictures of Phoenix, Arizona. How in the world did they do that out in the desert, right? Wow, green everywhere in the desert. Well, that's what humans do. They create stuff. They create places, they create fantasies, they sell philosophies, they sell items, gadgets for life that, oh, get this, be this, do this, and it'll satisfy your soul, and it always turns up empty. There can only be one Horeb. And only one place that eternally satisfies. And so I invite us today to repent of the Rephidims of our lives. And to run to the Horebs. And as you do, to join the church there. To stay there. Together to drink deeply from the rock. Pouring forth with life-giving water. That rock, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word to us this morning. I thank you for the challenge of it, the examination that needs to happen because of it, the authority found in it. Some will judge you unworthy this morning. Some will have a fleeting thought, but then the refidims of their life will get in the way. But I do pray for many of us to keep coming to Horeb, to the rock that was smitten. As Paul told us in 1 Corinthians, that rock is Jesus Christ, whose table we now celebrate. Before Mike comes, we'll give you an opportunity to pray and think and ponder, and then we'll celebrate the table together.
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.